0: Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Steve Macias and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor.
1: Welcome to another edition of the Out of the Question podcast. And today's question might seem odd. Why did St. Paul spend so much time in jail now this stems from that we've had a number of requests from people asking us to tackle the issue of romans 13 and the correct interpretation saint paul who wrote the book of romans and romans 13 specifically is the topic that a lot of people question in terms of what should the proper Christian response be. So being that St. Paul spent so much time in jail, what do you think he understood he meant in Romans
0: 13, Steve? Well, I think that his life is the greatest commentary on how he believed Romans 13 should be interpreted. I think it would be rather foolish for us to try to uh, shoehorn an interpretation of Romans 13 that doesn't match St. Paul's behavior. Certainly, we believe that St. Paul, uh, post-conversion, was a pious, holy, obedient, godly, Christian man. So the things that he goes about doing, in fact, the things he goes about writing, are inspired by God. And they were given to us through the Holy Scripture as an example for our behavior. So our task is not so much to try to pick out, maybe academically, uh, what could Romans 13 mean for us today, but rather look at what St. Paul actually did and allow that to interpret Romans 13. And so if you were to look at the same Paul's life before his conversion in about 33 AD, uh, he did a lot of things that deserved prison time, right? Uh, So he was the persecutor of the Christians. And that behavior, holding the coats and encouraging and being angry and all that stuff, maybe that was what really deserved jail time. But it was the other side of his life, the, the reborn Saul into Paul, this a godly missionary to the Gentiles who goes about sharing the grace and love and mercy of God, who experienced really the hatred of Jews and the Romans, who was arrested by the Jews and the Romans, who was beaten nearly to death by the Jews and the Romans, who went before Roman courts uh, basically for doing exactly what he taught in Romans 13, of following and obeying those in authority in a Christian way.
1: So authority is really a key issue here because what I find today that there are a lot of Christians who don't know the word of God. They don't value the law of God, which of course St. Paul did. And so when something comes up and they want an out, they want to extract a portion of scripture from the context of when it was written and who wrote it and then having it gel with other aspects of the word of God. And so they want to compartmentalize it and then just say things like, we're told to obey the civil authorities.
0: Right. And the idea that Paul himself simply obeyed the civil authorities would be a very flat interpretation. Now, keep in mind that the day of Pentecost or even St. Stephen or the the sermon given by St. Peter that we should obey God rather than man, these are all written previous to, to St. Paul. And so there was already in Christian experience an idea that authority came directly from God. In fact, the idea of Christian rebellion uh, to tyrannical or lacking authority positions of power really existed all throughout the entire Old Testament. When the Jews are taken into captivity, it's not suddenly now become Babylonians. When the Jews are taken under the Romans. It wasn't suddenly become like the Romans. In fact, the call was just the opposite. The battle between Christian identity and the Old Testament as a Hebrew or as a member of the Old Covenant prior to Christ really translates directly into the same atmosphere, the same behavior that we see Saint Paul teaching. When we talk about submission to authority, Christians from Genesis all the way to the last book in the Bible in Revelation, all talk about it's obedient to legitimate authority based on the scripture
1: So we have an authority problem in our world today because the author and finisher of our faith is neglected and it most often uh, when people give lip service to it that that God is God, they want to inject this idea, well, how I see God how i think it should be interpreted and that's where you get this view even today in a political sphere that the constitution which was established as the rule of this republic can be interpreted according to how someone feels or the tenor of the day and i think that kind of attitude has been imposed on scripture and it's why there's an impotence in the church because quite frankly a lot of professing believers are not loyal to the Word of God.
0: Right. And the the confession of the earliest Christians was a very simple one, uh, but it was very confrontational, as we've discussed in previous podcasts, and that was that Jesus is Lord, or this kurios, this uh, idea of sovereign. And the, the reason why this posed a real big problem for Christians of the first century, especially St. Paul, is to proclaim Jesus as sovereign was to directly conflict yourself or put yourself at, at enmity with the other people who are claiming to be sovereign. So at Christ's crucifixion, he was crucified under the hands, as our creed says, of Pontius Pilate, a Roman governor who was under the commission or the authority of Caesar Augustus, right, who himself claimed to have the same title, Caesar Augustus, Caesar Lord. And the idea of the first century Roman government was that the emperor himself was the, quote, Son of God, a title we see in the Gospel of Saint Mark, but it is also the same title that Christians have used to describe who Jesus is. So you have a conflict, um, a, a battle between two lords, two sovereigns. Jesus, who claims he is the sovereign, versus Caesar, who claims he is a sovereign. So at the very root of our religious identity, of what it means to be a Christian, is also a political issue of who is truly the Lord of this world, who is the Lord over this government. And Jesus is, in his ministry, challenges the lordship of Caesar over and over again. Dr. Rushton, talks about how the the taxes, the coin, the tax collectors, the temple system, the entire occupation of the country, Christ's ministry directly cuts against the idea that Rome was a legitimate authority. And in fact, his conversations with Pontius Pilate about what is truth and who has the power to crucify him, again, throws it back in the face of any Roman authority who claims to think they have some supernatural power over God or over his law.
1: Which means that when Christians say that it's a separate arena, that Christians should not be involved in politics, shouldn't be involved in certain professions. In other words, you leave Christianity for church, and then let everything else sort of vie for what has the most agreement. And so, in a sense, is it fair to say that if there is a person who holds a position of civil authority, who is flamingly opposed to and professing that which is antithetical to the word of God, that that person should be viewed as illegitimate.
0: Correct. Well, I think if we look at the actual text of Romans 13, rather than being a command towards obedience, Romans 13 sets up conditions for when obedience would be appropriate. See, the the issue is not, does Rome have power? Obviously, all Christians can recognize that Rome carries the great military strength, The great uh, bureaucracy, they have all of the money, they have all of the soldiers. And so there's no question in the Christian mind who is more powerful. And so whoever is the most mighty certainly could impose their will. But St. Paul is not really discussing whether or not we should recognize that power. He's saying, under what conditions should we obey that power? Is Rome's power absolute? And I think most Christians read it exactly the opposite of the conditions that St. Paul is saying. When St. Paul says that all authority is ordained by God, he's saying that anybody who is an authority must submit themselves to God. Rather than saying that there is some divine right and that we should recognize that those who have power, God must have given them that power, he says it the exact opposite. St. Paul describes even Caesar Augustus, even Pontius Pilate, uh, even the head of the Sanhedrin or of the temple, that these people are called to be, quote, ministers of God, meaning St. Paul imagined that all of these kings, rulers, Caesars, emperors, that they were supposed to be servants of the one true God, and their authority was conditional on how well they acted as servants. So for the first century Christians, when they looked at the Roman emperor with his orgies and his bloodshed and his totalitarian control over the Christians who refused to allow them to worship their Lord or meet in person, St. Paul very clearly says, these servants are not obeying the authority. They are not acting legitimately. And then he goes on to say, there are these purposes of civil government to be uh, punishment for the wicked, and to be justice, all right, to, to do good to those who are, who are law-abiding. And so these conditions, that these people are, their power comes from God, that they're servants of God, and that they have these two responsibilities, these are not giving power that belongs to God or to God's people away to the Romans, but rather saying that our obedience to the Romans is conditional, based on how well the Romans are obeying God's absolute standard that applies even to this foreign country. So if you don't know the history of
1: Western civilization, that a very small group of people post the ascension of Jesus into heaven literally turned the world upside down. They didn't do it with guns and spears. They did it by the promulgation of the ideas that you just elaborated. So the revolution in thinking came as people were regenerate and understood God's word. I can imagine some people would hear what you just said and said, oh, so you're really advocating for anarchy. So we just decide this governor, this mayor, this county supervisor, this president, this congressperson is invalid. Therefore, I become a rule unto myself. But that is not what Romans 13 is saying,
0: is it? Well, it's saying exactly the opposite. It's saying that what Rome was currently practicing was actually the anarchy. So when the Roman governor or when the Roman emperor gets to decide whatever is right in his own mind, that's true anarchy. The only place for order and structure comes from an absolute standard. And we in our modern scientific age are fond to speak of natural laws or natural order But throughout Christian history, those phrases, natural law, have been used to describe the order by which God sets things up. So even in the first century, there was an understanding that the Ten Commandments give us a moral, natural order of how families, of how criminals, how businesses ought to be run and treated. And so for us to understand authority, we have to first say, well, where is the source of authority? For Bible-believing Christians, this should be easy. If somebody comes to your church and starts teaching that the world is going to end because somebody's going to come down in a spaceship and that they're going to abduct everybody and take them to the planet Mars, you could say that's clearly not in the Scripture. You have no authority to teach that. But if somebody comes into your household and says, now you have to paint your house red, and the government says that you have to do such and such with your children or send them to this camp, Um, suddenly people begin to think that there's a different standard by which governments are to follow than individuals. But the entire reputation of the ancient patristic church, that is the church of the, the apostles in the early church, all the way through the Reformation was bringing every group of people, whether they were Christian or not, under this natural, and natural in a sense meaning divine, absolute, coming from God, because God created and ordered all things, under that law.
1: So some people might say, so you're saying don't vote for anybody who doesn't hold the Bible to be the unerring word of God, that it's infallible. And so what you're basically saying is if you just are restricted to those people, then you're giving it away. And I think that is a very nearsighted view And it's one that doesn't recognize how the patient, the dying society, got there in the first place.
0: That's right. And I think this is where Rush book on social order and his, his foundation's books are very important because he goes through how Christians have put Romans 13 into practice. If we go back to recent Reformation history, we can see that at the time when Luther and Calvin are going about putting into place the implications of salvation by faith alone, there is also a very strong political struggle. Churches and states are competing for authority, and we see the Roman Church is using the power of religion to control states. Uh, Dr. Rushtani points out that Spain and France, through concordant with uh, the Church in Rome, became Roman Catholic countries. The very country where we get the Huguenots and John Calvin, France, was completely Roman Catholic, not for the sake that they believed in Roman Catholic theology or that their colleges were thoroughly committed to the principles of Roman Catholicism, but rather because the princely pope in Rome promised political power to the state in order for control of the church. And so the same thing really happens throughout the continent. Uh, As an Anglican, I can see the battle happening from the Magna Carta all the way to Henry VIII, where the state and the church are battling for who has the place of authority. And the Reformation only becomes successful when both the state and the church say, there's one authority, the scripture. Therefore, let us pray, preach, and worship according to the scripture. Now, you see this also happening in Geneva. You see it happening in... Lutheran Germany. The German princes who all consolidated their political or stately power behind Luther were not firmly convinced of the principles of the Reformation, but rather there was a political element where they sought to use religion as a wedge by which they could control the church and therefore the state. And so rather than seeing history as this black and white, or being good Christians by disengaging or engaging on certain issues when perfect conditions meet themselves to us. The history of the church is the faithful few applying the word of God to unfaithful men and watching the Holy Spirit work out the conditions for reformation and revival.
1: Which means that our loyalty can't be to a group of people, can't be to those of certain ethnic origins, It has to be to the word of God, which will mean that sometimes in families, in churches, in local communities, there will be a disagreement as to how God's law applies. Today, in many jurisdictions, you're not even allowed to bring up what the word of God says. So that's where we've got to start. We've got to start at the ground level, establishing who's got the authority and who we are loyal to. And that may mean some disagreements and and hashing it out, but you referenced Dr. Rushduni's book, The Foundations of Social Order. That's exactly what the councils of the early church were all about, banging out ideas in terms of how do we end up with the orthodox, the correct position on what the word of God says and how we apply it.
0: Right. And there have been a number of different tactics that the church has used throughout the ages by which it can engage with the state. If you look at the very beginning of our church history in the first few centuries, you see complete revolution happening uh, at the time of Christ with the Maccabees and those who are going against the Roman occupation. You see really Jewish martyrs throwing themselves at the Romans unsuccessfully. You see that there's this revolution mentality, and Jesus doesn't really embrace that. Jesus has a different type of peaceful obedience in His death, burial, and resurrection. And so when His disciples, Saint Peter, Saint Paul, go about putting a political philosophy together based on the life and the work of Jesus, it doesn't carry with it this rabble or a revolutionary sense that we see uh, in earlier Jewish movements. Instead, It's obediently subversive. What we see instead is that they take their commitment to the lordship of Jesus Christ seriously in its religious and political implications. Most Christians don't realize that the first century Christians could have avoided the the sword, the the lions, the Colosseum, the flame, the mean made into human lamps if they just put some incense in front of a picture of Caesar, right? They could have just gone up, spent 30 seconds in the Roman temple, and they would have saved their lives and their families' lives. How many today go about doing something much more egregious in their obedience or even worship of the state that the first century Christians would have never even considered to be within the realm of their possibilities? But even more than that, if we go to more recent Reformation history, we can see that different tactics were done by different Uh, reformed movements. Calvin, of course, stressed civil civil obedience. He himself, fleeing from Catholic France, stressed civil obedience. Now, if anybody wants to read Romans 13 as obey the state no matter what it does, John Calvin is the perfect example of why that type of reading is not the Calvinist or the Reformed or the Protestant view of this scripture, because Calvin and his Huguenot people flee from the Catholic persecution to places of of safe haven, and then they begin to teach through faithful obedience to godly rulers, specifically the the civil magistrates there uh, in Geneva, that they could have peace, prosperity, and they begin to model through building a civil government around the Word of God, how you might build a Christian Republic. And of course, Calvin becomes the example for the Christian Republic throughout Western Europe, and eventually the foundations of the American Constitutional Republic are based on Calvin's obedience to what Saint Paul teaches in Romans 13.
1: And how remarkably ignorant when people want to take John Calvin, reduce him to five points, and argue over that when they miss the greater body of work and maybe just maybe that's the whole point divert people's attention away from that which would remedy lots of our issues today if people only understood that the word of god is not this compartmentalized thing that just belongs between your ears and it's all about piety and and, and just you know being holy by yourself that the word of god speaks to how societies should be organized
0: right well it's also important to recognize that all of the political sentiments that we feel today are not new to this generation right so there are so many christians who are just fed up with the corruption you know the the swamp or or the the leftists or however you want to describe political identity today so many just want to disengage and say why even bother and they think that they're kind of new, and that this age has never been approached in the life of the church, but at the time of the Reformation, there were a group of people who said that the governments of the world, whether they be church governments or state governments, are so corrupt we can't even engage with them. Those groups largely were affiliated with the Anabaptists, and the Anabaptists embraced a worldview, basically what was uh, m- you know medieval socialism that said. We are completely against any sense of state control. We are completely egalitarian in our government of our church, and we are going to make all things common, meaning we're not going to have any private property. We're not going to have any sense of of punishment or justice. And it's in response to that type of apathy and really rejection of God's law in so many different spheres of life that John Calvin is stressing civil disobedience. In fact, so much of the Protestant Reformation is rejecting this disengaged view that it makes its ways into the Westminster Confession when they talk about obedience to civil magistrates, and it makes it into the Anglican 39 Articles where they actually call these Anabaptist folks heretics who believe in this kind of strange uh, heretical view of Christian socialism. But what I think is common throughout this period is that Christians who were faithful to God's structures, they said, God does have an answer for this sphere of life. There is a Christian way to run a government. There is a Christian way to help the poor. There is a, a biblical solution to whatever ans- whatever problem that needs an answer. And if we walk it forward just a couple of steps, past John Calvin, past the English Reformation, and bring it into the United States, we really get something special as Americans in that for the first time in Reformation history, the idea of the Magna Carta is revisited and, re- and replaced with a holy Christian and full-orbed doctrine uh, inside the United States Constitution. The U.S. Constitution takes exactly what St. Paul describes in Romans 13, the idea of, of delegated authority, the idea that there's a creator, an almighty, who is the source of all authority, and that he has given certain delegated powers to the state, St. Paul talks about the the sword, doing good to those who are doing well, to punishing those who are wicked, right? This idea was then translated into a, a document to apply to all other subordinate governments. And so, more than ever, Christians in America have every opportunity and excuse to obey and to understand Romans 13 from a Christian perspective.
1: And what's remarkable I think today, it's easy to look at things and say, oh, they're terrible. Look what's happening here. Look what's happening there. But one of the things that is happening is this underlying humanism, secularism is coming to the forefront. And now people are waking up to the fact that the state education system does not talk about the foundations of the United States as being something that's derived from the Protestant Reformation and the idea of local government as opposed to an overriding central government. And I'm not sure our listeners are familiar with things like the 1619 project, which is pretty much in being embraced through all public schools around the country, talking about how America at its roots was this despicable, hate-filled group of people who are just trying to subjugate other people. Well, it goes back to the idea of he who teaches has a lot of influence because young people hear it first, and it's always easier to instill an idea early on than it is later on. But my charge to people who are listening to our podcast who get it Do you understand the constitution of the united states do you understand the foundations of social order do you understand the importance of local versus national government if you do start finding a group of people to teach because it isn't going to happen at the ballot box it's going to happen in the minds and hearts of people who then will respond i have a duty to this because my god says, I should take every thought captive and take dominion in Jesus' name. The problem is people might be willing, but they don't know what to do. And on a very grassroots level, I don't care how old your students end up being, whether they're young children or they're senior citizens or they're millennials, they need to know that God has not abandoned the societal realm And everybody just wait to get the elevator ride up to heaven.
0: That's right. And this is something where Christians have experience, and so most of modern Christian uh, commentaries will talk about us living in a post-Christian society. I don't believe that at all. I believe we're right in the middle of uh, a rebuilding Christian society. We're getting rid of all of the the fake Christianity and the church is being purified, and we'll come out on the other side of this generation stronger, more pure in our doctrine, more fervent in our faith. Um, that all of the crises presented by this world are from failing to obey Christian doctrine, not as the consequence of Christian doctrine. Now, when you talk about the 1619 Project and really the American Foundation, what's interesting to me is that if we look at America's history, there is an emphasis on. Uh, This idea of a government by the people for the people, right? This is even quoted by Abraham Lincoln. But Lincoln was actually looking back, and whether you like Lincoln or not, he was looking back to a 14th century English scholastic, a a prelate of the Church of England before there was a, a Church of England, John Wycliffe, and Wycliffe is the one who famously penned that the, the scripture is the standard for which the church and the state run. And that's why he talks about everybody must have a Bible. And therefore, we can be a people, a government by the people, for the people, according to the scripture. And on, on this issue, on the idea of, of Romans 13, Wycliffe went a step further. And he says that no one is civil lord. No one is a prelate. No one is a bishop while he is in mortal sin, uh, that there is no dominion or no authority to rule without grace. And so from even the early days, this primordial Reformation thinker, they recognized that those who claim power, but don't have the moral standing, those who claim authority, but are not taking it from the grace of the scripture, really don't have authority. So we need to think about that in sense of how we are understanding our civil government, calling it back to its foundations. The Constitution is a very powerful document for our country because unlike other nations, which have kings who can change, who are uh, able to alter their opinions, who are able to be shifted at court, we decided as a nation to take the rule of law, the idea of enumerated rights, and make that Christian doctrine the center of our government. And so when we are trying to be obedient to our authority, what is a higher authority than the Constitution in the United States? Well, there isn't one by nature of our bureaucracy. There is the scripture over everything. And then inside the state, no president, no Congress, no senator, no member of the cabinet, none of them are higher than the Constitution. And so when we are having our struggles today, where local health officials or governors or bureaucrats of different state agencies are telling us to do things that are contrary to the Constitution, and other Christians are using Romans 13 as a sledgehammer to beat us down, we have the proper biblical and constitutional standing to say, if we are going to obey Romans 13 as Americans— We have to call to the highest authority in this land, the Constitution, and how that's interpreted underneath God's holy scriptures.
1: And not be swayed by the narrative of your favorite news organization or news outlet or social media platform. That's why I say you must, you must have a foundation in scripture so that if it's your spouse, if it's your parent, If it's your child, if it's your pastor, if it's your employer, if it's someone who works under you. In other words, we must frame everything in terms of how does this line up with Scripture? Are we being obedient to Scripture? And if more people were to do that, it wouldn't be an issue of numbers. How are we going to get enough people to do that? It just takes someone who firmly believes it. And I always think back on... Um, David as a young boy who goes to bring some bread to his brothers who are sitting there cowering against Goliath. And it's not that David sat down and did the calculations and said, okay, I think if I'd had this trajectory with this stone, he was just unnerved by the fact that these people were cowering to someone who was blaspheming the living God. And if we had people who had that kind of orientation, we would have, figuratively, the necessary smooth stones to knock down these Goliaths that are vulnerable precisely because they're in disobedience to God.
0: That's right. Again, back to our our initial question, why would St. Paul spend so much time in prison? Uh, It can be said of all of the apostles. It's evident that Christ, the apostles, that they must have disobeyed someone in power, but they were being faithful to the true authority when they disobeyed the power. They had to break somebody's law, right? St. Paul had to break a law, whether it was an edict out of the mouth of Caesar or some local provincial law. Something was broken. He had to disobey some power that be. But St. Paul understood that in breaking those laws, he was actually obeying the authority set out in Romans 13. and. This is really important for us to understand and how Chalcedon gets its name is that the Chalcedon Foundation was built around the idea or the Christology of, of Jesus Christ being both divine and man. And so contrary to Rome, who saw their emperor as both God on earth, the Christians saw Jesus as both God and mankind, and that Jesus came down into the world to have the divine rule come into humanity. And so when Saint Paul talks about people being ministers of God, he's talking about us receiving a certain authority according to the scripture that supersedes all of the natural authority of this world. And so for us to recognize Christ truly as the uh, hypostatic union, truly as the divine and the human, truly as possessing the two natures as Chalcedon professes there at that early council, we have to recognize that all of humanity is being transformed into the image of Christ.
1: And, you know, when you were talking about Paul having been on the wrong side of somebody's authority, yet all his epistles exhibit his authority as coming from God to talk about how Christians should live and what they should do. But think about it. He's in prison for violating not God's law, but man's law. There's this earthquake, and then he tells everybody in the prison not to leave. He was exerting godly authority at that point, and apparently he had enough command that no one left. As a result, someone who might most anybody would have thought, well, this guy will never change his allegiance or his his loyalty, suddenly bows down and says, I must submit to this God that you serve because you had everybody stay where they were. And, And I think it's important that we don't just extract things without seeing that full picture, that Paul, prior to his conversion, was a student of the scripture. What happened when he was born again, he was God allowed him to put the pieces together. So early schooling, early understanding of the tenets of the faith and how they relate to every area of life is so fundamental that Christians must remove their children from these places that seek to divorce any possibility of them ever knowing the
0: truth. That's right. Well, in our tradition... We, we pray for the state. We pray for our president. We pray for our governor every Sunday. And we pray that they would heed their calling, that they are God's ministers. And I think that that is really the important part of Christian government. It's not so much that we as individuals, as, as servants of the state, but rather that all institutions are servants of God. And just as you as an individual have a duty to listen and to obey the voice of God, the rule of God, the spirit of God in your life, so too does the state have a duty to obey God as his servant. And so in Romans 13, when it says the state is ordained by God to be a terror to evildoers and to be the servant of God, that's condition put upon the state. If the state, whether it's the state of California or these United States or the Arab Emirates, whatever state it might be, that once a state fails to do those things, then their authority, not their power, their authority is being undermined by their own actions.
1: So there's a lot of work to be done. And rather than that being the bad news, that's the good news. Because as we work towards furthering the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that blessings of God end up being manifest in greater ways. So Aside from that book, we mentioned the Foundations of Social Order. I'm going to go back to recommending that people get a hold of the book, Law and Liberty, also by Rush Dooney, also available at CalcedonStore.com, but that they start teaching it to their family, their children, their, their neighbors, the people in their Bible studies. And for those who are interested in actually making it a study, a number of years ago, I prepared a list of questions that would go with every chapter of the book. So you even have your own study guide. And for anyone who's interested, contact me through out of the question podcast at gmail.com and I'll send it to you. But I really think that if we take this challenge and say, look, people are upset with what they see going on. At least most people are help them build a society that honors God by being faithful in keeping his commandments.
0: That's right. And that's really the the mission of Christian Reconstruction. Often we've been maligned as somehow being a political movement. But what Dr. Rushdini has really taught throughout all of his various books is that the central institution of change and transformation has never been the state. The state is downstream from the central institution, and that is the family. And that we as godly parents, godly siblings, godly members of churches, uh, that we have the power to change society, whether it's the state, because of how we order and structure our families. Here in our area, we can see, in in our area of the world, in this country, we can see how much power business has, how much power families have, how much power local communities have. It's not so much that in our system, the person with the title governor has all the power. In fact, the power is drawn from faithful, committed people below, whether they do something or do nothing. That's where the source of power comes from.
1: Indeed. Well, I hope we have addressed the concerns of a number of people who have sent in asking us to talk about it, because there are a number of things that are happening currently where we see the battle lines being drawn between the church and the state. And it will even help those who are not directly involved with those particular situations to know how to pray, to pray that rulers, no matter how far gone they might see, might be convicted of their sin and turn from their wicked ways.
0: Amen. And have hope and confidence that any place tyranny has reigned, Christians have been faithful to overcome it through Christian obedience. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.